Hello, and welcome back to the final episode of The Resistible Rise of J.R. Brinkley, brought to you by Untitled Theater Company Number 61, a theater of ideas located in New York City. I am Dan Butler, your narrator and host, and here again is the artistic director and playwright, Edward Einhorn. And what are we hearing now? I'm not sure, because I haven't heard it yet, but what I wrote in the script is the sound of approaching doom, so I guess we'll see what the sound designer, Josh Samuels, comes up with. Approaching doom. Yes. So things are not going to end well? Uh, Not historically, no. Not for Brinkley. Though there may be a few writer's embellishments at the end of the episode today. I also wanted to introduce our final guest, Dr. Tracy Laird. Dr. Laird is a professor at Agnes Scott College and the author of four books, including Louisiana Hayride, Radio and Roots, Music Along the Red River. She is going to talk to us a little about country music and politics. Welcome to the show, Dr. Laird. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we're very happy to have you. I had a quick question, so we can talk about it at length later, but what's the difference, if there is one, between country music and folk music, and if there is a difference, when did the split occur? That's a good question, because actually at the time of the Louisiana Hayride, which is beginning in the late 40s and running up until about 1960 was when the show died, they would often refer to themselves as country and folk music and refer to a singer like Hank Williams, who we think of as you know an icon of country music, as a guy doing folk and Western music. So they were not so separated back in the day as they became during probably the rise of the folk revival and artists like Pete Seeger or Woody Guthrie being associated with workers' movements and kind of left-wing politics, and then carrying on in the 60s with another generation of musicians. So that's probably where the split happened. And then while that's happening, there's also the rise of Nashville as a commercial center for what becomes commercial music. So those forces of commerce and politics, I think, are responsible for separating what really shouldn't be separated, ultimately. Thank you. We'll be talking more with Dr. Laird at the end of the episode. Stay tuned. Meanwhile, Edward's going to tell us a few things about the theater company. Untitled Theater Company Number 61 has been making theater in New York since 1994. Like all theaters during this pandemic, we are reinventing ourselves in order to continue to create theater. We need your help. This year, we do not have a box office to rely on, many of the grants have gone away or shrunk, and our donor base is not able to support us the way they have in the past. All of our work focuses on ideas, political, scientific, philosophical, and above all, theatrical. Our style is inspired by theater of the absurd, mixing the comic and the tragic. In the 2000s, we ran the Ionesco Festival and the Havel Festival. Also working closely with former Czech president and playwright Václav Havel, Ionesco and Havel's work have been a continuing inspiration for our style. To learn more about our work and the history of our theater, or to contribute, please visit our website, untitledtheater.com. And now, let's move on to our story. When we left the story last, Brinkley was planning a run for the presidency. But first, he had some other business a libel case against Dr. Fishbein, who had called Brinkley a quack and a charlatan. In print, the trial began on March 22, 1938. It was held in the federal building in Del Rio, Texas, with a jury consisting of local ranchers and businessmen. Judge McMillan started with a warning. Mr. Brinkley, 
A lawsuit like this is going to practically put your whole life in issue. You have chosen to file it, and that's your business, but I might as well warn you to be prepared. Now, I see you have a number of witnesses planned who are willing to testify to the effectiveness of your treatment, and Dr. Fishbein has a few of his own ready to testify that you ruined them. Well, I'm afraid you have wasted these good people's time. I don't believe any of that evidence is admissible. The court will only be listening to the testimony of medical professionals and the like, not interrogating your former patients. Uh, your Honor, how are we expected to make our case? The usual way, Mr. Morris. Through evidence. You'll have your chance to make your case, and I assume you are familiar with the art of cross-examination. You make our task unnecessarily hard, but if that is your ruling... It was. The experts all sided with Fishbein, of course. Then it was Fishbein's turn. Dr. Fishbein, have you ever performed a prostate operation? <laughs> no. Have you ever seen Dr. Brinkley perform an operation? No. So you are essentially basing your accusations on nothing. Uh, the American Medical Association has been conducting investigations of Mr. Brinkley for over a decade. Speaking of the AMA, doesn't the AMA have a prohibition against advertising your own works? I, I don't see how... Uh, and haven't you written a number of works on medical charlatanry and others on self-diagnosis? Wouldn't the publicity from attacking Dr. Brinkley be a boon to the publicity of your books? I don't know about that. Yet there has been criticism in the AMA about those publications. Some have been critical, yes. How many other doctors have you called quacks? <clears throat> Quite a few, though Brinkley is the worst. How many careers of good doctors have you ruined in your quest for self-publicity, Mr. Fishbein? How many medical pioneers have you tortured and destroyed? Objection, Your Honor! Sustained. Mr. Morris, please refrain from that sort of hyperbole in my courtroom. No further questions, Your Honor. Next to the stand was Brinkley. Doctor, you have heard the so-called experts testify about the impossibility of your prostate treatment benefiting people? What have you got to say about that? All I know is I help people. My ambition has always been to do what good I can every way that I can. I've been doing it for over 20 years and I can't even count the people I've helped. Some people think that I may have helped more people than any other doctor in the country. I don't know about that, but I certainly do my Best. Fishbein's attorney, Clinton Brown, conducted the cross-examination. Dr. Brinkley, what's the value of that ring on your right hand? I paid $4,300 for it. Hmm. The one on your left hand? $1,000. Your stick pin? $1,500. Your tie clip? $800. Your Cadillac out front? That would be harder to say. How many automobiles do you have? I would have to count. How many times is your name painted on them? Or on your yachts? Or your estate? I don't know. I like my name. People like my name. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> your goat gland operation. Uh, what do you actually do with the gland? It's inserted. Oh, and then uh, hooked up to blood vessels? Oh. Well, no. Nerves? No. So you just slice a hole, put it in, and uh, sew it up? Its essence is absorbed. Oh. How does that happen? It's a process of absorption. 
And why would that work? I can't exactly say why, but it does. You, you can't say why? Just interview any of my patients. So they would be the medical experts on this? <clears throat> Let's turn to your Formula 1020. Describe it to us. Uh, what's in it? Well, it's quite complicated, and I don't want to reveal all my secrets. <laughs> and your elixirs? I would say the same. Well, tell me this. Do you measure dosages by weight or volume? Dr. Brinkley, by weight or volume? Dr. Brinkley. I'm not sure I can answer your question. I don't rightly know. You don't know? Well, I don't exactly know what's in all this stuff. Then how do you make your elixirs? By instinct, mostly by experience. Some of those elixirs have most deadly chemicals in them. If not used correctly, how do you make them? What matters is they work. Dr. Brinkley. You may know that there are some reporters in this courtroom. I wonder what your patients are going to think about that answer when they read about it tomorrow. Tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there? When they crucified my Lord Were you there When they crucified my Lord Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble Tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? Were you there? When the sun refused to shine Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble Tremble, tremble Were you there? When the sun refused to shine Well, it's hard times right now at XCR, as you may have heard. Dr. Brinkley is defending himself against yet another malpractice suit, and frankly, they may mean the ruination of that good man and this good station. Meanwhile, his appeal of the libel case has been turned down by a very prejudiced judge, one of Fishbein's tribe. And now the latest news is that the Mexicans are planning to tear us down. Now don't worry about me. Thanks to Dr. Brinkley and this station, I have done quite well. But as for my friend and his wife and boy, well, they are suffering. 
They are suffering. Jimmy, is there something you want to say to Dr. Brinkley now that he is sitting here in court with us? I didn't come to you because I thought you were a great doctor. I came to you because I knew you wouldn't laugh at me. And I needed someone who understood how awful it is for a man when he can't be a man. It transforms you. I can't explain it exactly, but it gnaws at you. It just gnaws at you. I heard about your operation from a cousin. He was laughing about it, but I thought, well, I'm desperate. But I laughed too. I didn't want him to think anything. My wife, Laura, she would tell me she didn't mind, but I knew that she did. And we wanted a baby. We wanted one so much. And it was me. It was my fault that we couldn't. I was the failure. I don't know what went wrong. When I was a kid, I couldn't keep the damn thing from popping up, even in the most ridiculous of circumstances. I had this young teacher. She was as pretty as anything I'd ever seen, and... Well, never mind, you know. Laura, she blamed herself because she had gained a little weight. But so had I. What did that matter? And she would get all dressed up and try to seduce me. And I was terrified, petrified that my own wife wanted to make love to me. I'd find every excuse to be out or to be tired or... So I was desperate, you see? And there you were with your operation. Took all the money I had and it hurt like hell. But one day, my wife came over and I thought, you must have cured me. I mean, what else? And Laura got pregnant. And suddenly I felt totally different, reborn. So when you asked me to come on your radio, I came on your radio. And when you asked me to join you on your campaign to testify, well, I did that too. I did it gladly. And then Billy, my only child, we were only able to have the one. He got sick. And the doctor said he would get better, but day after day passed and he was so sluggish. I don't know why. He just didn't seem to have any energy anymore. And I heard you on the radio talking about your elixirs. And I said to my wife, I said, Laura, no matter the cost, it's worth it. Worth every penny. I'll never forget when we opened up that bottle. Laura turned to me and said, well, it's hard for me to repeat it. She said, it smells like a corpse. I should have listened. But instead I said, I trust him. Give it to the boy. Within hours, you know, I love that boy. I watched him grow up, watched him play, watched him become a little man. You have a son, don't you, doctor? Johnny? Imagine holding his hand while he's screaming in pain. Imagine not knowing whether to pray that he lives or pray that it ends quickly. When I had my problem, I thought it was the worst thing that could happen to a man. I never even imagined he died in that pain, and you poisoned him, you and me together. You with your elixir and me for believing in it. What did you buy with that hundred dollars of mine, Dr. Brinkley? How many of your elixirs did you have to sell to buy your mansion and your yachts? How many people died, sir? How many people died like my son died? Pretty soon, Brinkley declared bankruptcy. Turned out he didn't even know how much debt he had, 
As long as he had been successful, all that debt didn't matter. But once everything began to fall apart, there wasn't much left for people to sue him for. But they kept suing. We're almost to the end now, folks, but before we get there, we're just going to take one last quick break with Edward. Any last thoughts to share with the audience, Edward? Uh, well, I wrote that last monologue before coronavirus hit, and while I was preparing for this podcast and encountered it again, it struck me in a whole different way, especially uh, because my mom died from coronavirus a few months ago. So the references to death and the real-life consequences of Brinkley's cons just hit home. I'm so sorry about your mother, Edward. Thank you. I should probably set up the end of this episode, as it confused a few people who came to the stage production. They asked me afterwards if Brinkley was a real person. And I said, yes, of course he was. The story is all true. Mostly. Except for the completely made-up part. Well, folks, you know what happened after that trial. Somehow, Brinkley turned it all around. He rose up from the ashes like a phoenix. And in 1940, he won the presidency from FDR. Soon he appointed the blind cowboy as his secretary of energy, Rose Dawn as his secretary of education, Father Coughlin as his chief strategist, Henry Ford as his secretary of labor, and American hero Charles Lindbergh as secretary of state. As president, he restored both his medical and his radio license. And every morning, he would broadcast. Welcome once again to WUSA, the sunshine station from the capital of the nation, broadcasting to you straight from the Oval Office of the White House. Right beside me, as always, is my First Lady, Minnie. A mighty hello to all you Americans! So I see that once again the fraudulent press, or as I like to call them, the very fraudulent press, is making up slanders against me. Now, I don't read the Kansas City Star, but I know how eager they were to suck up to me once upon a time. Remember, Minnie, when that publisher, that... Roy Roberts fellow came up to me at a party and told me he might need my medical help. <laughs> I didn't tell him that maybe he just needed a more attractive wife. <laughs> oh, John. John, you shouldn't say that. It's the truth. I'm sorry, but that's why I was elected to tell the unfiltered truth. Well, they certainly have been very unfair to you at that publication. And not a word about how successful Lindbergh has been keeping us out of this damn war. Now watch your swearing. Don't want to be too salty. But we had an awfully good time with the Mussolinis the other day, didn't we? Oh, Rochelle Mussolini is just charming. And she is in such good shape. Just beautiful. That Mussolini is a clever man. Took him ten minutes to explain what's going on out there in France. And those pastries were heavenly. But does the press report that? No. All they want to do is call me a con man. After I won the election, by an historical margin, I'll add. Do you think I'm a con man, Minnie? You definitely are not. 
Every word I have ever spoken, I have believed. Yes, I have. Every word. Me too. I believed every word. And I know all you out there, all my fans who listen to my broadcast each morning, you believe it too. You are the people I talk to. You are what it's all for. Because I know you will believe in me, no matter what lies you hear. I could go out and shoot a man on the street and then tell you I'm no murderer, and you'd believe it. You'd believe it, because I'd believe it. That doesn't make you dumb. It doesn't even make me awfully clever. You see, truth? Some people think that truth is about a lot of facts. That's not what truth is. The truth is something that can only be told by someone like you. Like me and you. Other people, they don't understand the truth, but we do. We know exactly what we are talking about because we know each other. And people that are not like us, that don't believe what we believe, they are all liars, aren't they? The world is divided between the truth-tellers and the liars. I know what side I'm on. I am the truth-teller. I am the most honest man in the world. Believe me, that's who I am. Who are you? So it's bravely, take it from me. Bravely on to victory. We're here to make a fuss. J.R. Brinkley, you're the man for us. J.R. Brinkley, you're the man for that's the end of our story folks thank you so much for listening to our show We do have one final interview with Dr. Laird, who will be talking to us about the history of country music as it relates to politics, among other topics. Welcome back, Dr. Laird. Thank you. So here's a very simple question. What is country music? It's a good question and not necessarily an easy question to answer simply. I think country music is music that emerges from the roots of American culture in rural life. I like to romantically think of country music as music associated with hard work and hard play with instruments that were, you know, initially very portable and loud and forms that were shaped to meet what I think are basic needs of people, both to dance and to hear stories and collects associations along the way. I think some of them worth hanging on to. There's a certain nostalgia, I think, that's associated with country music. So a lot of the show is touching on radio, and I would think all music benefited from it, but do you think country music came into its own through radio? I think, yes, very much so. And particularly spreading from the rural roots of it to urban areas far and wide. This is a time of AM radio, and so... AM radio has this wonderful effect of it bounces up into the ether and then it bounces back down. And so these AM stations could be heard across the world in some cases, especially the 50,000 watt powerhouses. Whereas FM radio, you have a better sound quality, but it goes straight out and then drops off after about 90 miles. And so the signals 
carried music places that it wasn't already. At the same time, you're also finding people with increasing urban types of jobs and the loss of a lot of rural life. People who remembered that music and love that music are living in cities now and are also feeding the spread of it. And then with Brinkley and him ending up across the Mexican border where they didn't have any limits, it was more than 50,000 watts. And he is in between his sales of remedies. He's airing these discs of country music. And I think the genre owes a lot to a charlatan like Brinkley. (laughs) So you had mentioned briefly before about folk music coming to a point where it was connected with left-wing politics with Woody Guthrie back in the... 40s, I mean, with This Land is Your Land, and then Pete Seeger, of course. But when did country music become associated for some with right-wing? I think it very deliberately became associated with right-wing politics during the era of Nixon. There is a story that a scholar, I think he's a scholar of literature, Mark Allen Jackson, has a collection called The Honky Tonk on the Left, and it's all about progressive thought in country music. But he opens with the anecdote of Richard Nixon coming onto the Grand Ole Opry and making a speech that was the kind of speech along the silent majority kind of idea, where he's very deliberately connecting country music with the values that he was trying to promote and trying to appeal to white working class voters by connecting that music with politics, particularly in support at that time of the Vietnam War. And so he kind of gets entrenched there. And it's something that Ronald Reagan picked up on. And I think that's when it became really ingrained. I think both during those times and then the entire history of commercial country music. I mean, certainly there's a strain of conservatism that you can follow, but there's equally a strain of working class values and emphasis on equality between people. So it's much more rich and nuanced and varied than the story that I think eventually gets told about country music. I think it's been pigeonholed in a lot of ways. Well, that's when it was so refreshing, like when Garth Brooks came on, or, I mean, they've now changed their name, but the Dixie Chicks. The Chicks. Yeah, the Chicks. Yeah. The Chicks. <laughs> yeah, and the Fox News, which I guess is, you know, at this point being completely associated with very conservative politics, they latched onto it as well and would very deliberately have guests, people like Toby Keith, who were very vocal speaking out against the Chicks and their comments. And really, in some ways... I mean, we talked about the split between folk and country music in the 50s. In some ways, it echoes the politics of the time where the folk artists who were blacklisted because they were, you know, quote unquote, communists. I think a lot of the anti-communist thought had very little to do with communism itself as a set of ideals, certainly not anything to do with ideals of freedom of thought that we all value as Americans. It was about being against something and not necessarily that even being super articulated. I think probably a lot of people who went out and broke their chicks CDs probably didn't even know exactly what had been said. And if you look at the entire 12 words that Natalie Maine said, they're pretty innocuous. It's hard to imagine deciding to get so worked up that you would destroy your CDs. I think it's really more about just getting worked up. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Music's powerful. It's amazing. It is. Are you a country music fan? 
I am a country music fan. My heart is in classic old country. That's where the heart of my research has been. And of course, there are artists that I love. And in fact, I love the New Chicks album. And I love a lot of the sound of country music. There are aspects of current artists that don't appeal to me as much. I don't want to sound like an old fogey, right? (laughs) These modern sounds are just not what they used to be. But as a person who grew up in the 70s and the 80s, a lot of what I hear sounds a lot like 80s rock to me. And actually, I recently ran across, there's a documentary about the banjo that features Bela Fleck. And at one point, he talks about moving from New York to Nashville because there was a country scene and people said, well, you play the banjo. But being told that the banjo was too country for country, (laughs) that was in the 80s. So I think we're seeing more artists who are interested in shaping their sounds around those sounds that I love in the old string music and close harmonies and this kind of thing. And I think that has to do with the explosion of outlets that people have too. So growing up, if you had you know, one or two country stations in your market. Now, if you've got Sirius XM, you've got 10 or more different country stations to choose from. So there are connections being made that in the past wouldn't have existed. And I think that's probably a healthy thing. Between that and then other types of streaming services, I think a lot of the old categories that got entrenched through the needs of commerce to put things in categories so people could know what they wanted to buy. I think a lot of that's getting broken down and I hope it gets rebuilt in ways that are more true to what I consider to be most interesting about American culture in general and country music, certainly in particular. Yes. Well, sometimes the tower has to come down and be rebuilt from the ground up. Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) That was our final episode of The Resistible Rise of J.R. Brinkley. Are there any future podcasts planned, Edward? Uh, Well, if we can raise the money for it, we will be adapting Jack London's book, The Iron Heel. It's the first American dystopian novel written in 1918. London imagined what America would become if it were taken over by an oligarch. He was writing the novel from a socialist perspective, and we're also going to have a Brechtian take on our adaptation using classic folk music, which uh, I guess there's not that much distinction with the country at the time, to comment on the drama. Edward, thank you so much for asking me to be a part of this. It's been such a pleasure in every respect. I think the only thing left is the final credits. I hope you, our listeners, can come back for future Untitled Theater Company number 61 productions, both audio and someday again, soon, on stage. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Untitled Theater Company Number 61, A Theater of Ideas. It starred Dan Butler as our narrator and host, Tony Torn as John R. Brinkley, Jenny Lee Mitchell as his wife Minnie, John Blaylock as the blind cowboy, Craig Anderson as Jimmy and Judge McMillan, Joshua Wolf Coleman as Dr. Mars Fishbein, John Bronston as Mr. Mars, and Jason Harris as Clinton Brown. Our songs in today's episode were Brinkley, You're the Man for Us, a parody of Harding, You're the Man for Us, written by Al Jolson in 1920, and Were You There, an anonymous composition first printed in 1899 and probably composed by slaves earlier in the 19th century. The musical arrangements were originally written by Tom Berger and further developed by Richard Philbin, who music directed, mixed the music, and provided all the instrumentals besides the piano and violin. John Bronston was our pianist and lead vocalist for Were You There? And John Blaylock, Jenny Lee Mitchell, and Craig Anderson provided further vocals on both musical pieces. 
Julia Hoffman was on violin. Richard Philbin also composed and played our background music besides the violin parts. The episode was sound design edited and mixed by Josh Samuels. The play was originally presented as a live stage version in New York in October 2018 at the Martha Graham Studios as part of the New York Fringe Festival. My name is Edward Einhorn and I'm the writer and director. Please visit our website, UntitledTheater.com, to learn more about the show and our theater company and maybe to contribute. Thank you again for listening. This has been our final episode of The Resistible Rise of J.R. Brinkley, but we hope Hope you can join us for our next project, wherever it may be. Bye.